This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us this wonderful, beautiful Thursday afternoon. The weather is definitely starting to get nicer, which is appropriate because Pesach is coming, and one of the names of the holiday of Pesach is Chag Ha'aviv, the holiday of the springtime. God says, not only did I take you out of Egypt, but I took you out of Egypt when it was spring and it was beautiful. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. God's like, I got you covered all the angles. This is the luxury resort experience. We've got a team of party planners. We think of every detail. No stone is left unturned. No detail overlooked. So God says, I want you to remember that I took you out specifically. Not only did I take you out, but I took you out when the weather was nice. Indeed, we see the weather getting nice and Pesach is rapidly approaching. So thank you for joining us for this class today. I want to thank the amazing folk over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for enabling us to have all these classes and for employing me in that endeavor for the last 16 years. And of course, I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website. It's filled with hundreds of thousands of hours of incredible Jewish content. Download it into your brain and become great through it. Alrighty, here we are. We are in the middle of talking about the Pesach Seder deconstructed. Last week, we talked about the concept of the Seder, the 15 steps of the Seder. We talked about Kaddish. We talked about Orchats. We talked about Karpas. So we talked about the first three steps, the Kiddush, the washing of the hands, and the dipping of the vegetable into the salt water. Of course, the vegetable is very variable based on where you live. There are people who use potatoes. There are people who use cucumbers. There are people who use parsley. I never The parsley one, I only heard of when I moved to the Midwest. I never heard of it before. People use all kinds of things. The bottom line is, though, we dip something in salty water. We move on. Now we're going to move to yachatz. Yachatz is when we break the middle matzah into two halves. And here my grandfather, Olava Shalom, would insert, you can't have a big, no, you break the matzah into two halves and you hide the bigger half away. And here's where my grandfather, Olava Shalom, would insert, you can't have a bigger half. Because <laughs> by definition, half is 50%. He's right. My grandfather was generally right uh, in that way. You cannot have a bigger half. So let's, let's rephrase that. You are going to break the middle matzah and hide the larger piece away for... A later part in the Seder, what are we doing with that? Okay, so I want to talk about a few different concepts. Number one, there was a story of, this goes back many years ago. Today, I mean, Baruch Hashem, you know, if, one of my closest friends, could be my closest friend in the world, none of, lives, I, I don't know, whatever. I'm at that point in my life where I don't, I don't need to have a best friend. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's okay. I have good friends all over the place, and I'm okay with that. So, <laughs> but, but most of my closest friends don't live in Detroit, right? They're friends of mine for years, and they live out of Detroit. But Baruch Hashem, we connect with each other all the time through, you know, phone. And, and I just went on a, on, a, on, a, on a snowboarding vacation with one of my friends um, just to reconnect. It was very, it was a beautiful, spiritually uplifting and, and rejuvenating experience. A couple days in and out, Utah. So, like, today, when you, when you disconnect from a friend, you, it's not like you're really disconnecting. You can, you can video chat, you can talk, you can see him, you can talk to him. It ain't no big thing. Back in the day, when people left, <clears throat> they left and they, if, if friends were leaving, if one friend was moving to a different city, let's say the two of them went to rabbinical school together and then one of them took a job at, at uh, you know, in the city of, you know, Yakutsk, and the other one took a job in, in, in uh, you know, in, I don't know, whatever, in, in America, you know, they were never going to see each other again probably and might not even be able to send letters to one another. That means that people who went to yeshiva together and were close and friends for years together, formative years, building, learning, growing together, would then literally part ways. One would go east towards Russia and one would go west you know, towards America and they would never ever see each other again. So there's a story of two friends that they were forced to part and they weren't going to see each other and they're at the train station as one was heading on his train to go to the port city to catch a boat to America where he had been offered a job as a rabbi. And the other one is you know, standing there with him at the station and then one of them remembers, now in those days people didn't have pictures a lot also, like pictures were very expensive, it was very hard. That's why you notice, if you ever look at old pictures, everybody's very serious in the old pictures, you know, but you, know, you ever notice that, like, if you see pictures from the 1800s, it's not a family of smiling, no one's going like, hey, no one's, no one's like, yeah, none of those pictures. It's all like, people look like, it's, it's, it's a very somber picture. 
And I think perhaps the reason why everyone was so somber in those pictures in those days was because pictures cost so much money. It's like you had to mortgage your house just to get a picture of the family. So like it was nice to be able to have a picture, but it wasn't necessarily a happy moment. You were going to be eating, you know, you're going to be eating ramen noodles for the next six months, you know. No, but the reality is that, that was more the custom of the time that they didn't smile. But it was, it was people didn't always have pictures. One of the guys remembers I've got a picture in my in my pocket that I took one time. So he takes out the picture and he rips it in half, and he gives it to his friend and he says, "Look, whenever you think of me, just look at this picture and recognize that I'm not whole without you, and I'll do the same." And this way, we'll always remember. This friendship that we had, the relationship that we had, the, the, the support that we gave each other, right? On Pesach, we rip the middle matzah in half. And we recognize that the bigger part of us, we are a nation, we are a family. God took us out of Egypt, and that was the birthing of a nation. We as Jewish people call Yisrael Arevim, not Zelazeh, but Arevim Zebazeh. If you actually look at the actual statement from the sages, it says, Call Yisrael Arevim Zebazeh, which does not mean all Jews are. It, it, we generally say it means they're responsible for one another, which is true also. But the word Arev, besides being a guarantor in Hebrew, also means mixed. Erev is evening time, it's because it's when day and night are mixed. Right? You've got, you've got daytime when it's light, and you've got nighttime when it's dark, and then you've got evening when it's, it's Erev. It's mixed. There's a mixture of light and darkness out there. So, call Yisrael Arevim Zebazeh. We're all mixed in with one another. We're all part of one another. <coughs> Excuse me. I recognize that the vast majority of me is not with me. They're hidden. They're away. And we have to go and seek out the other. Now, this has so many different levels of being true. On one level, right now, we've got the Jews in Ukraine. All the pain and the suffering that they've been subjugated to, right? People who left their homes. People who left everything behind. People who are still there. I saw a video of Purim in Odessa. And it was the big shoal of Odessa. The big, beautiful, beautiful shoal of Odessa. And there's like... Eight people there. There's almost nobody there. And they have a, 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 some food out on the table. They've got some bisley, some, some, some biscuits. And they're talking to one another. And one of them says to the other, the other one, he says, Ah, Chaim, you're such a tzaddik. You're only here because your parents are here and they can't leave and they're too old. Right? Is that true, Chaim? And he says, Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a tzaddik, but yeah, that's why I'm here. There are people who can't leave, don't have that ability, who are stuck in Ukraine all over, and there are many people who fled and left everything behind. I mean, imagine what that would mean for you. Like, literally, I just want you to stop for, for a moment and imagine that you were given an hour and told, pack whatever you can in your suitcase, we're leaving. And you'd have to leave behind your home, your clothing, your furniture, your photo albums, you have to leave behind everything, and you don't know if you'll ever see it again. And there's a good chance that you won't. It could be bombed and shelled by the time you get home. And if it's not, people will come through it and ransack it while you're gone. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what you're going to eat. You could try to stick you know, a couple bags of food, biscuits or whatever, like something that doesn't spoil, in your suitcase with you. But at the end of the day, you have no idea where you're going. You know that you're going to the border with, you know, with, with Belarus. You know that you're going to the border with you know, whatever country it is that you're going to. And you're, gonna, you're hoping to get out of there. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to Israel? What are you going to do there? Even if you go to Israel, which is amazing. But what are you going to do there? It's crazy. People are, people are in pain and suffering like we can't imagine right now. That's on, on a physical level. What about on a spiritual level? Think about the matzah. You break the matzah and the, and the larger part of the matzah is hidden. The vast majority of Jews today, are, are they're hidden from their reality. They don't know who they are. They don't know what a glorious people we are part of. 
They don't appreciate the amazingness that a, the Jewish people are for the world. And I don't blame them. I don't blame the people who don't know. This is generations already of it being dumbed down and watered down and watered down. So it gets to the point where even if they go to school, they learn that, oh, the Jews are about, you know, we're about tikkun olam. We just, you know, we want to make sure the whole world is good and you should make sure to recycle and drive a, you know, a renewable energy car and, and, and you should always be supportive of causes that are progressive or whatever. Like, they don't even know what Judaism is. They don't know where we come from. The vast majority of the matzah is hidden. And we, we can't sit at our Seder saying, oh, all is good, when he- the majority is hidden away. So we hide the middle, the larger part of the middle matzah, and we say, go find it, Kinderlach. Our job is to find the bigger half of the matzah and bring it back from where it's safun. We eat the bigger part of the matzah later in the meal at a place called safun, which means hidden. Our job is to find the Jews in any place where God has left them and scattered. And they can be scattered in Peoria, in Illinois. They can be scattered in Dayton, Ohio. I one time did a tour right before Pesach of Michigan communities, Michigan Jewish communities. So obviously, the largest Jewish community in Michigan is right here in, in, in southeast Michigan in the Detroit area. There's a, there's a community in Flint. There's a community in Grand Rapids. I went to communities in Houghton Hancock, Iron Mountain, Jackson, Sault Ste. Marie. When I was in Iron Mountain, there was like nine Jews left in the city. And I came and they all got, almost every city where I went, the whole city, like all the Jews got together. There were so few left. It was mostly old timers. And I would come and I would give a class and I would sit with them and they would say, Rabbi, don't leave. We haven't seen a rabbi here in two years, three years. And it broke my heart. The Yachat says, you want to talk about your freedom? You're going to sit down now. This is right before Magid. You're going to talk about your freedom. Recognize that that freedom is not evenly distributed. There are people who are in, in real oppression and pain and suffering, like the Jews in Ukraine. And then there are also Jews who are not free because they don't even know what freedom is. They don't know what Jews brought to the world. They don't know what true freedom is. We have to go seek them out. So, Yachatz, before we start talking about our freedom, we recognize that this is not an evenly distributed freedom. That there's so much more that don't have that freedom. That it's safun, it's hidden away from them. And we have a job to seek them out. How many Jews do we interact with on a regular basis that we could just invite them for a Shabbos meal? Again, just invite them for a Shabbos meal. Jews who don't have Shabbos meals for a few years at a time. Unbelievable, guys. And we can invite them. And if you don't have a Shabbos meal on a regular basis, great! Make a Shabbos meal and invite other Jews who don't have a Shabbos meal. We gotta find there's more Jews out there that are lost than Jews that are found. We gotta go hide and go seek. That's idea number one. Another idea that I heard from my daughter. My daughter was just in Israel. So I have a daughter who's turning 14 in Mirzashem in June. And she was supposed to go to Israel for a bas mitzvah trip. We try to have our daughters go to Israel with their mother. When you become bas mitzvah, it's a very special time. You're becoming a woman. And I can't think of a greater Jewish woman than my own wife. So they go with my wife to Israel. Now all my daughters went right around their bas mitzvah. And actually it was interesting because my, my, my daughter just went now. She couldn't go. She had a flight booked in May of 2020. But then there was this thing that happened. I don't know. There was like some people who ate a pangolin or something. <laughs> and then there was like a virus that went around. I don't know, some kind of like, a, maybe like a flu. And there was like maybe vaccines. I, I don't remember exactly the whole story. But um, they couldn't go in May of 2020. They couldn't go in May of 2021. They finally went just now. And it worked out also very well. My daughter is in seminary right now in Israel. I've got my oldest daughter who just turned 19, Baruch Hashem. She's already in seminary in Israel. So it worked out really well. So my wife and daughter had the amazing privilege of sitting in on seminary classes with my daughter, who's in seminary. 
So my my 13, almost 14, and it actually worked out very well because she's older now. She's more mature right now. Like, Baruch Hashem, she really was able to like extract the Kedusha, the holiness of Eretz Yisrael in a way she probably wouldn't have if she had gone at the age of 12. So much so that we're considering maybe we should send all of our kids when they're 14, not 12. But anyway, we'll figure this out. More conversation can be had about that. Feel free to send me your notes and your comments. <laughs> in any case, the... My daughter was just there, and she sat in on one of the classes, and she came back. She, my, 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 this daughter, my 13-year-old daughter, listens to classes all the time. Baruch Hashem. She's a huge consumer of Torah Anytime content. She even made herself her own little notebook. She made a custom-made notebook with the Torah Anytime logo in big, on a, like a, a custom-made plastic cover. The Torah Anytime logo, and it says, Benos Torah Anytime. That's the school that she goes to, which, by the way, is so much cheaper than Benos Malka or Benos Yehudis or Benos, you know, Chana Chana. Like, all the seminaries in Israel generally cost over 20 grand. Benos uh, Torah Anytime is, is a free seminary. It doesn't cost anything. So, um, anyway, my daughter is, a, is, is an avid student, so she sat in with these classes, and she said, Daddy! Oh, I learned such an amazing shot. I learned such an amazing idea about yachats. I'm going to share it with you, and it's going to change the way you have your seder. So this is what she heard, and here, here is, and she's right. It's going to change my seder. So she said like this: that she was hearing a shear. I forgot who it was from. It was from one of the teacher, one of the rabbanim in Benos Yehudas, which is where my daughter goes to seminary. And he shared the following idea. My daughter was taking notes furiously. My 13-year-old daughter is taking this. She went to class. It's amazing. She went to class with all these like, girls who are 19, 18 years old. And she's taking notes furiously. So she's like this. They learned that the idea for Yachatz is that the second half represents Olam Haba. The larger half represents Olam Haba. And the smaller half represents Olam Hazeh. Right? How long are we in this world? In this world, we're here for 70, 80, 90, 100 years, whatever it is. Right? Maybe, God willing, you should all live to 120 but even if you all live to 120, that's the way, way smaller part. The much larger part of your existence is Olam Haba. The much larger part of your experience in this world is the world to come. And that's why you've got you've to be searching for your ways to get the Olam Haba as much as possible. But listen to what he said that now is a game changer for me. I happen to be, I'm not trying to say this to boast, but it's just a fact. You know what I'm saying? Like I... I happen to be a master afikoman hider. <laughs> How do I know this? Because there are many years where nobody finds my afikoman on two nights of Pesach, despite the fact that there's not that many places you can put it. I've been very, very creative. And we're talking about, we have like, I don't know, 15, 20 kids looking for my afikoman, right? Because, because I make it so hard to find, the prize is generally a three-figure prize at least. It's, a, you know, whatever. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expensive prize. I'll offer an expensive prize. So the kids... They all want to get my afikoman, but it's become such a, like, an amazing thing. And I'm, I'm Baruch Hashem. Like, I mean, you understand, like, I've, I've gone into the freezer and opened up containers of frozen, like, pre-made meats. You know, we'll often make meats ahead of time for Pesach. So, like, we'll have, like, pans and pans of meat that just need to be taken out and put into the oven to warm. And I'll literally open up the silver foil, stick my matzah, of course, covered and properly wrapped and all that, in the frozen... You know, meat pan, <laughs> cover it over with the aluminum foil on the bottom in the middle of the freezer. I mean, like, Baruch Hashem, I've, been, I've, I've hidden it in electric panels. I mean, you name it, it's been there. And Baruch Hashem, like, it's been, kids have not found my afikoman for many, many years, many times. But the rabbi said something amazing. He said, make it a little bit hard to find, but not too hard. Why? Because you want your kids to know that they can get the Olam Haba. That they can find it. Right? If the bigger matzah represents Olam Haba, and everyone's going around. Part of the job is to go find Olam Abba, to go extract. There's so much Olam Abba is so accessible in this world. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call somebody and say, Hey, I'm just checking in on you. I haven't seen you for a couple of days. Everything okay? How you doing? You look, oh yeah, good. Oh, by the way, I saw your grandson the other day. He's, oh, what a sweet boy that kid is. Wow, you raised him right. You know, whatever. There's so much. So, Olam Abba is so accessible over here. You got to fight for it a little bit, of course. Obviously, if not for that, then it wouldn't be worth anything. But the bottom line is it's super accessible. So this Rav said that you should make your Afi Komen a little bit hard to find, but not too hard, because Olam Abba is not that hard to get. So, guys, ladies and gentlemen, I just have to make this announcement here. I am no longer an amazing Afi Komen hider. That's it. I'm no longer an amazing Afi Komen hider. My mother just wrote in over here. She wrote, what I don't understand is why they don't have someone trailing you, a spy network. And the answer is, of course they have people trailing me, but I have a whole process of like running from room to room, 
by the time I've finished hiding Rafi Komen, I've entered like 17 different rooms and pretended to hide it in each one. So there's a, and, and I'll go off into a room and I'll slam the door behind me and I'll lock it or whatever. It's like, there's a whole process over here. It's a good question, Ima. That's a good question. And of course there are kids trailing me, checking me every room I go into. But I, by the time I finish hiding it, I've gone into seven different rooms, and they don't know which one did I really hide it in, and which one did I really leave it in. Sometimes even after going through seven rooms, I still have it on my person somewhere. Of course, when I come out of the rooms, they're trying to like pat me down. I'm like, eh, 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 you know, whatever. So like, there's, there's a whole process to this. Hiding Afi Komen well is not an easy thing. In any case, but no longer am I a good Afi Komen hider, because the rabbi said you got to make it somewhat easy to find, because you got to let the kids know, Olama Buzz not that hard to find. It's, that's the whole purpose of life. Here in this world, we got the little half is Olam Hazed, enjoying this world. It's a little bit. The bigger half is what we have, Safun, the part that we have hidden. The word Safun means hidden for later, so to speak. The, the goal of life is to set aside as much as you can for the rest of for the next world. Right? We've got a long, long journey ahead of us for all of eternity, and we want, we want to make sure that we've got a first-class cabin on that cruise ship called Olam Abba. So the vast, vast majority of our time, we're setting aside provisions and money for the world to come, but it's not that hard to do. Therefore, you should not make it too hard to, to find your, your uh, Afikomen. Moving right along. There you go. That is Yachach. Now we move to the Halach Ma'anya, the beginning of Magid. The beginning of Magid. This is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Anyone who's hungry, come and eat. Anybody who's needy, come and make peace with us. This year we are here. Next year we'll be in the land of Israel. This year we are servants. Next year, God willing, we will be free men. Let us ask some questions about the Halach Ma'anya. Number one, you start off by saying, this is the bread of poverty, this is the bread of affliction, and then you invite everybody to come and eat it. (laughs) Okay, ladies and gentlemen, today we're having three-day-old leftovers that we've already reheated and eaten three times. By the way, anybody who's hungry, you can come and join us. Once you throw that down on the menu, you know what I'm saying, there's not that many takers when you say, I'm inviting everybody to come and join, right? Once you let everybody know... I thought you guys were eating brisket. I thought you guys were eating, you know, lamb chops. I thought you guys were eating, uh, you know, some, some, some kind of filet mignon or kosher filet mignon, of course. I thought you guys were eating some really, really good food over there. And you're telling me that what are you eating? We're eating bread of affliction. And then you come and invite everybody. Not so much. Maybe I don't want to come. Next, why don't we open the door for the guests like we do by Elijah. Right later on, we invite Elijah in. And by the way, Elijah, I tell you a secret of Elijah. Elijah's super cool. He can actually go through the walls. How do I know this? How do I know that Elijah can go through the walls? Because there's another thing that we invite Elijah to. What is that? The bris. Do we ever go and open the door for Elijah? No. We don't send somebody to the door and say, go open the door. Elijah's coming for the bris. Elijah has a way of getting in. So the fact that we open up the door for him is kind of ceremonial. If that's the case, why don't we open the door for all the guests that we're inviting in? By halach ma'anya. And thirdly, what is the connection to going to Jerusalem next year? Okay, let's go through the answers. Number one. This is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Whoever is hungry, come and eat. Do you know why we're so sensitive to the needs of others? Because we know what it's like to be in pain and suffering. Do you know who the best people are for working with drug addicts, unfortunately? Alcoholics, unfortunately? It's generally people who used to be drug addicts and alcoholics themselves. They know the pain, they know the suffering. They recognize the incredible power of salvation and they have a desire to share that and spread that. So whether they're going through a 12-step program and that's actually the 12th step of the 12-step program is to share your recovery with other people or they're not part of a 12-step program. The bottom line is there's nobody who can understand and empathize even with a, a drug addict more than a person who was a drug addict at one point. The rest of society often will look at them with a critical eye. Oh, why, why can't you stop? The drug addict understands. They, they know what it was like to be a drug addict. And they know why they can't stop. And they know what the pain and suffering and agony of addiction is like. They're not there to judge. They're just there to help and support and guide. They're also not going to take any garbage. right? People who are addicts often are the most incredibly inventive people at putting up every kind of excuse possible and every kind of explanation possible for why they should be doing what they're doing. 
But the addict, they, you can't play the games on them. I taught high school for 18 years. For 18 years, I taught high school for eight years. Yeah, I taught high school for eight years. It was an amazing experience. But I used to tell the kids in the beginning of the year, I'm like, look, look guys, whatever tricks you're going to try to play, I've probably already done it. <laughs> I noticed. See, my mom was on the Zoom, and I noticed that Cherna is asking my mom, "Was I a good Afikoman finder as a kid?" And the answer is, I'll tell you right now, it is yes, I was. How do I know this? Because I'm the only one who got my grandfather's afikomen. My grandfather made it exceedingly difficult to get his afikomen. He didn't hide it in a hard spot. He had it right inside of his kittle. But he just didn't let anybody come close to it. I got it. There was a whole set of diversionary tactics. I can't even go into the whole process. But there was like, there was like a right hook feint, and then there was a coming around from the back, and then a hook around. I mean, we, we talked about that. You guys, you had this diagrammed out. This was like, I mean... This was like breaking into the <laughs> Fort Knox. So, but I can tell you this much. Um, you're talking about helping people because of the difficulties they went through. Drug addicts. How did I get to going back to being a good Afikoman finder? I don't even know. Okay. Oh, yeah. But I, I, as a student, I also wasn't the greatest student. So I used to tell my students, I'm like, kids, you guys can't play anything on me. Okay, you can try, by, by all means. You want to you try to pass notes, you want to try to go right and do your thing, right? But I'm just, I'm just telling you that I've, I've done it all before, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch you. So, like, whatever. Like, let's, let's, let's just dispense of that right now. The best person who can help with the addicts, when, the addicts is giving all, when, an, when an addict is giving all the rationalizations, which is what addicts do best, unfortunately... The person who's the addict, they, they know, they see the signs, they know the guy's lying. Oh yeah, you're, you're pretending like you're cleaned up, but you're not. All right, listen, I'm, I'm not going to judge you. Like, I understand where you're coming from, but tell me when you're ready to actually change. So the best people for helping addicts are people who were addicts. The best people who can be, the kindest people in the world are the people who suffered the most from the unkindness of others and the cruelty of others. There's no nation in the world that has suffered more from the cruelty of the nations of the world than the Jewish people. You almost can't name me a country in the world that Jews have lived in where Jews have not suffered tremendously. And because of that, we are also the most giving people in the world. In terms of percentage of our income given to charity, no one's more charitable than the Jews, except for perhaps the Mormons, because if you don't give 10%, they kick you out of their church, so it's a self-selecting group, sort of. But on, on a global scale, who set up the first field hospital in Ukraine right now to help people who are getting bombed and shelled? Israel. When there's a tsunami, when there's Haiti, when there's, you know, in the Philippines, whatever happens, who are the first people on the ground sending planes with tons and tons of medical supplies and food and everything? Who's the first people on the ground? Any problem there is in the world, the Jewish people. Because we know what it's like to suffer. And that gives us a sensitivity to be able to be kind to others. Hashem put us through what's called a Kor Habarzel. Hashem put us through Egypt, which was an incredibly difficult and excruciating experience. It was a smelting pot. But part of what He did for us there was that He taught us deep, deep empathy. We know what it's like to be treated cruelly. So we're the first people to open our hands and invite others in. This is the bread of affliction that we ate in Egypt, therefore called if anyone's hungry, come and eat. Because we know what it's like to go hungry, because we know what it's like to suffer, we're there to alleviate suffering for others. That's idea number one. Then we say, so the first step is if you're hungry, come and eat. Then the next step is anybody who's needy, come and make Pesach. So the first step is I want to take care of your physical needs. If you're hungry, let me give you food. Then I want to take care of your spiritual needs. If you are needy, what are you needy for? You're not hungry, you're satiated. You're needy for a, for a Pesach experience. Come and have Pesach. If you're needy for spirituality, Behold, there are days coming, says the Lord. And I will send, I think this is in Isaiah or in Jeremiah. God says, I will send a poverty, a, a, a famine into the land. People will not be hungry for food or thirsty for water. 
People will be hungry for a word of spirituality. Look at the world that we live in. We live in a world that's so incredibly messed up right now. A world and everything that's good is being declared bad. Everything that's bad is being declared good. Everything that's bitter is being declared sweet. Everything that's sweet is being declared bitter. It's unbelievable the world that we live in. And people are thirsty for a word of spirituality. Now, of course, you can't fill yourself spiritually when you're starving hungry. The first thing we got to do is take care of your physical needs. Who do we learn this from? From Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu would first take people into his tent, feed them a meal like a king, and then he would talk to them about blessings and God. So we say, If you're hungry, come and eat. But if you're satiated and you're starving for spirituality, you're starving for being part of a Jewish community. So many, again, so many Jews today are starving, they're wandering. We started a program here in Detroit for dads. It's called the Dads Division. Very creative name. Do you know why we started it? Because I heard the following, I heard the following experience from two separate people. Two separate people told me this. They reached their midlife stage. And they were feeling a little bit of a midlife crisis. And they didn't know, like, what do I believe in? What, what am I? What's a Jew? What's it all about? So they booked a meeting with their rabbi. What do you do when you're stuck? You, you book a meeting with the rabbi. They booked a meeting with the rabbi. The rabbi said, great, let's, let's, let's go get a coffee. Let's go get a drink, whatever it was. The rabbi sits down with them and they start pouring out their heart. I don't know. I don't know if I believe in God. I don't know if, what, what is Judaism. What does it even mean to me? What should I do? And this story happened to two different people. And the rabbi was like, yeah, me too. I also, I also don't know if I believe in God. Was there really an exodus? Was there, was there really some being in the sky that created the heavens? I don't know. I'm with you. I'm such a good, empathetic rabbi. Such a good, empathetic rabbi, but this guy's starving, and you're not feeding him. He's not starving for food, and he's not thirsty for water. He's starving to hear the word of God. He wants to hear somebody tell him, yes, there is a God. Yes, there is a next world. Yes, the Jewish people are special. Yes, we have a mission in the world. And you do too. You have a mission. You have responsibilities. You have a job. And say, what do they hear? Yeah, I don't know. Me too. I'm, I'm also not sure. Unbelievable. There's such famine today for spirituality. There's such famine for just true knowledge of who we are and what our responsibilities are. Baruch Hashem, there's so many rabbis who are also out there providing that, but it's unbelievable. Okay. So first we say, if you're hungry, come and eat. If you're needy for spirituality, come and be part of our Pesach experience. But we don't open the door. You know why? You got to come knocking. You got to come knocking. You have to be looking for it, really, for it to work best. A lot of times I have parents come over to me and they say to me, Rabbi, can you reach out to my son? He's in college and he's doing this and he's doing that. He's dating a non-Jew and I don't know. And Can you reach out to my son? I'll give you his phone number. Nope. Not really. Not really. I'm not, I, I, it's, this, this is not how it works. If some random rabbi that he never heard of before calls him and says, Hi, my name is Laby. Your mom gave me your phone number. Can we talk about spirituality? <laughs> they don't have any interest! Now the reality is, what I'd love to say to those parents is like, How about this? I'll make you a deal. How about you bring more spirituality into your life? Right? Really fill your life with positive spirituality. And then, your son will see how incredibly inspired you are. And by the way, we've seen this in partners time and time and time again. Parents who get involved later in life. They've got kids who are teenagers already. Kids who are in college already. But the parents start getting involved. They start coming. They start coming to classes. They start learning. They start doing this and Shabbos and whatever it is that they're doing. And the kids just start... They don't push it on their kids. Never push. You can't do that later in life. When kids are young, you can give them chinuch. You can kind of educate them in certain pathways and make sure that they're 
common, you know, you're trying to make a rut in the in the in the dirt. Like, that should be like easy for someone to go this way or that way, you know. So you can you can mold people much better when they're young. When they're older, you can't really mold people so much, but you can inspire people when they see that you're really that you really care. But what I will say to parents often, I say, look, for me to just call him out of the blue, it's gonna have a he's gonna have a very negative approach. Have him call me. Please give him my number. As soon as he calls me, I will go out there. I'll meet with him. I'll set up lunch with him. I'll do whatever it is. I'll be happy to do it. I, I just, I, you can't just give me his phone number and say, call him. It's not going to be a comfortable conversation. Sometimes when it comes to spirituality, you got you to come, you got to knock on the door. We're not opening the door for you, necessarily. Not, not that we'll open the door as soon as you come knocking, of course. But the point is, it's, it's, and of course, there is such a thing where you reach out to people at spiritual places. There was a rabbi who used to stand, Rabbi, rabbi Schuster, he used to stand at the Kotel, and people would be coming there, Jews would be coming there from all over the world, they would start breaking out crying, and he would just tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, can I help you? And that was a very special moment, they were very receptive. But a guy sitting in his dorm at University of Michigan playing beer pong with his frat, and suddenly gets a call from a rabbi, hi, my name is Laby Burnham, I'm a rabbi that your mom called me and asked me to connect, it's just, it's not how it works. There's a famous story in the Gemara about Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel used to put a guard at the door. And he would only allow people in who were the same on the inside as they were on the outside. He said, if you want to come into my yeshiva, you have to be the kind of person who's the same on the inside as you are on the outside. You've got to be a real, genuine, authentic person. How did he know? How did the guard at the door, did he have like a, a, a like one of those, you know, when you go to the airport, the TSA guy, he's like, here you go, stand like this, and then he would go like this, <laughs> okay, you're authentic, you can come in, another guy, he passed it around, you're like, how did he know if you were authentic or not? I heard once an amazing idea. If you were already known to be an authentic person, he let you in. If he didn't know you, he'd say, I'm sorry, you can't come in, it's a private club. It was a big bouncer, you know, big guy, sorry, you can't come in. But if you really were the same as you were inside as you were on the outside, if you really cared so deeply about wanting Torah, you would find a way to get in. You'd be like, okay, I'm not, I'm not listening to this bouncer at the door. I'm going to go find the back door. I'm going to go find an open window because nothing can keep me away from Torah. I want it so badly. So if you found your way into the base Medrash, then you were real about it. So, of course, Rabbi Gamliel's shita, Rabbi Gamliel's opinion was disbanded. And when he was taken away from his position, they opened the doors wide open and 400 extra benches were added to the synagogue on that day. 400 extra benches. When they said, okay, whoever wants to come, come. come. It used to be there was 300 benches there. Then they added 400 more benches. Because they said, whoever wants to come, come. Not only those who are perfectly authentic. But the point is, is that for spirituality to work best, just knock on the door. Just make that first step. Just take a step towards us, and it will work so much better. Okay, next. Why do we say this over here? We're talking about the bread of affliction. We're talking about where we are right now. Now, Baruch Hashem, if you don't live in Ukraine, I mean, even in Israel right now, it's a tough time right now. Terrible, terrible terrorist attacks. Terrible, horrific, horrific, terrible terrorist attacks. Day after day after day. If you live in America, Baruch Hashem, you're not hungry. You're not starving. You're not being oppressed. Generally speaking, you're not being discriminated against for being a Jew. But yet, if you say, God, I still want to come back, that means that you're real. There was a king, they say, it was a king whose son kept trying to make a coup. So he sent his kid away to like Siberia. And the kid keeps saying, Dad, I want to come back. Dad, I want to come back. He's like, you don't really want to come back. You just don't like your life out there in Siberia. So what does he do? The king says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send him a ton of money. I'll get him set up over there in some distant land. But I'll give him a, a castle. I'll give him you know, all the luxuries, he'll have amazing chefs, he'll have amazing carriages, he'll have amazing entertainment, he'll play for a court jester, we'll give him the most amazing life. And then let's see if he still wants to come back or not. Does he miss me or does he miss the luxuries because he's living in Siberia right now? We sit around our tables on Pesach and Baruch Hashem, it's, it, it's nice. 
It's really nice. The Pesach Seder, the white tablecloth, and all the bottles of wine from all over the world. There's amazing, delicious quantities of food cooking in the kitchen, and you could smell the smell. People are sitting around, dressed beautifully. Life's not so bad over here. But when we say to Hashem, even though, look at life, life's pretty good over here, but we still feel like servants. We still feel like slaves. We still feel like we're not free. We want to come home. We want to be in Yerushalayim, Habnuyah. Then God says, you must really want to come home. You must really want me, because you're not lacking anything else other than me. In America, what are we lacking? Baruch Hashem, right now, life is good in America. What we're really lacking is the spirituality. So if we come to Hashem and say on the night of Pesach, even though I'm looking at, at the Seder and I've got so many great things, but I'm missing you, and because of that, I feel deeply lacking. And then God says, and now I know you're sincere. Okay. Next. The next part is, after Halach Ma'anya, we have the Manishtana. Why do we give over the opening remarks of the Haggadah, pretty much? The Halach Ma'anya is just an introduction. Before we get started, we want to invite anybody who wants to come. Now we're starting the real Haggadah, though. Why do we give it over to the children with this, you know, four questions thing? Right? What, what, what's the idea of giving over the launch of Magid, the launch of telling over the story to our children? Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, who lived from 1902 to 1979, and he led the Mir Yeshiva, which was the largest yeshiva in the world for more than 40 years, in Poland, Shanghai, and then finally in Jerusalem. He answers it by asking another question. There's a, a pasuk in Ezekiel, in Yecheskel, Perak Mem Vav, pasuk Tes, Ezekiel 46.9. It says the following, Ubevo Amar, it's describing when the Jewish people would come, to pray at the temple in Jerusalem. And when the people would come, the people of the land would come before Hashem during the holidays. He who came from the north great to prostrate himself before God, to bow before God, he would go out from the southern gate. And whoever came in through the southern gate would leave from the northern gate. Lo Yashuv Derech Hashar Asherba, he would not return by way of the gate upon which he came. Ki but rather on the opposite side he would go through. Why is that? Why would they not allow people to go through the gate on the same side that they came in? I and mean, that's it's much more much more practical, for sure. Especially if you came with a donkey or something, you left your donkey tied up outside the northern gate. But now you gotta go outside the southern gate, you gotta walk all the way around to get back to your donkey. In addition to that, there were a lot of things that you were not allowed to bring into the base of Megdash. So you might have left, maybe you left your money belt, maybe you left your swords, your weapons. If you were a man who walked around with a scabbard and a sword, you were not allowed to bring that into the base of Megdash. So you would leave it somewhere outside. Again, you left it right outside the southern approach, but now you're going out from the north. You've got to come back to get your weapons. So why would they not let you go out the same way you came in? So if Chaim Shmulevitz says something fascinating, he says, if you went out from the same gate, you get a certain sense of familiarity. Yeah, like, been there, done that. And familiarity means less awe. And sometimes, God forbid, it even brings contempt. Right? Familiarity breeds contempt. There's a verse in Proverbs, in Mishlei. Parak chafei pasag yudzayin. Hokar ragel chamei Make your feet scarce in your friend's house, lest he have too much of you and hate you. It means don't make yourself a burden. Don't call the same person all the time and stay on the phone and stay on the phone and stay on the phone too long, right? It's, it's an amazing... The, the uh, Shlomo Melch, the wisest of men, is saying to us, don't, don't overstay your welcome. Familiarity breeds contempt even sometimes. And definitely not awe. I'll give you an example. I don't know if any of you have been in the, in the new Chorvashul. The new Chorvashul is an amazing, amazing, beautiful, gorgeous synagogue. Right? It's, it's, it's a synagogue that's been rebuilt, I think, now three times. For many, many years, after the, the Jewish people took Eretz Yisrael, it was, just a, it was just an arch. There was an arch remaining, so to speak, of this old, beautiful shul that was the highest point in the old city. And the Muslims didn't like it because it was the highest point. 
It's higher than their mosques. So they destroyed it. But it was rebuilt, and it's a gorgeous, beautiful shul. Now, I imagine, I've only been there a few times, and every time I go in there, I'm just like, oh, wow, it's beautiful. What a beautiful base measures. What a beautiful way to show honor to God by making a beautiful home for Him. I'm sure people who live right there and dive in there you know, three times a day, they don't, they don't feel that sensitivity. They don't feel the specialness. That's one of the reasons why I don't want to, I, I would not want to live. There are people who live in the old city. Some of the most expensive real estate in the world is real estate overlooking the old city. Real, real estate overlooking the Kotel. I would not want to live overlooking the Kotel. As much as it's amazing, you live, you look outside your window, and there's the Kotel, there's the base of English. It's, it's too holy. And I don't want to lose my sensitivity to it. I don't want to turn my back to it. I don't want to have God's home right here. And I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, um, I'd like two pies. Um, ex- uh, seasoned fries, please. And uh, let me get on one of the pies some olives. Like, There's God's house. It's like, yeah, it's too much. Says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, Kinderlach, kids, they're always excited. They always find excitement and newness in something. It's amazing. The kids come home from school, right? They get home from school and they just drop their backpacks and they run off to do something, right? It's amazing. You watch kids come home from school, right? It's throw down the backpack and run off because they left a toy over here and there's a thing over here and there's a new puzzle and, I wanna, and we, get, we got a new package from Amazon. I got my new Lego. There's, there's always something going on. I'm in the middle. I built a fort yesterday, but I broke it down last night. I'm going to rebuild it. This time I'm going to make it a three-story one. It's like the whole, it's amazing to them. Even if there's no newness, they can recreate out of the same little, same five ingredients, 20 different games. They don't lose their sensitivity to that. And that is why we start the Seder with them. The Seder has to be new and exciting and better and different every year, every single year. If we just do the same stale Vartoras, even the, the, the ideas that we share, if we share the same Vartoras every single year, the Seder loses its magic. Kids have magic. You know, I one time went to a rabbi of mine's house. His name was Rabbi Yisrael Steinwurzel. He lives in Muncie. It's an amazing, amazing yid. A chassidish yid. His father was the Rashiva and the above of yeshiva. For, for, he passed away at a very young age, his father, unfortunately. And Rabbi Steinwurzel, I believe, has 11 children, Kinahara. And I one time came to his house. One time I came to his house in Shabbos, for Shabbos in Muncie. And it was a golden experience. Meaning, to this very day, we're talking about this happened 20 plus years ago. I can still remember him standing at the head of his table, wearing his royal Hasidic garb, flanked on both sides by his family, and they're all singing beautifully together. I mean, the boys, the girls didn't sing in front of me, of course. And the, 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 the table was just... It was royal. There was, there was. <laughs> it's hard for me to describe it. It was gold in the air. It was like it, it, it was Shabbos. It was so special, so beautiful. I never went back actually, and I decided that because it was the, it was the perfect experience. I said if I go back, it's just not going to be that. It's not going to be that great. I wanted to have that memory of it, like the perfect Shabbos, at Irish Diamond's house. Now I tried that with my wife. My first anniversary, we made this amazing, amazing. I made this whole amazing thing for her with a gift and a poem and a this and a that. And afterwards, I said, "Honey, this was the perfect anniversary. I don't want to ever ruin it, so we're going to stop with the anniversary tradition." Okay? I'm kidding. <laughs> now, why am I kidding? It sounds like there's something reasonable there. I'm saying, "Hey, we just had an amazing, perfect anniversary from the beginning until the end." We went out to eat, and I gave you a gift, and there was a letter, and there was a note, there was some jewelry, flowers, everything. We got everything. We just did it the perfect anniversary. Why do you want to do more? And the answer is, of course, the answer is you got to do it different and better. The answer is not to do the same thing again next year. No, it's figure out a way to make it different and better every time. That's what you got to do with your Seder. you got to make it different and better. That's what we start off the Seder with kids, because kids have a new way of coming up with everything. New questions, new answers, new excitement. And that's what the Seder's got to be. Please don't use the same Vartoras in your Seder every single year. Please inject newness and excitement. 
I want to point out one fascinating little point here. The Vilna Gun says, what are the four questions? Why do we eat matzah? The whole, on all the nights of the year, we eat chametz or matzah, and tonight we only eat matzah. On all the nights of the year, we eat, re- um, we eat regular vegetables or bitter vegetables. On tonight, we eat bitter vegetables. On all the nights of the year, we don't even dip once. We're not required to dip once. Tonight, we're required to dip twice. And all of the nights of the year, we eat whether sitting or reclining. Tonight, we eat reclining. The Vilna Gaon says something fascinating. He says, back in the day, everyone ate reclining. That was the standard way of eating. If you see pictures and mosaics and frescoes from the times of the Roman era and that kind of thing, in the year 400 BCE, right, people ate reclining. That was a common thing. The Gemara describes a person eating as masev. It's like leaning. That was the normal way of eating. So what were the four questions back then? They couldn't have been, on all the nights of the year we eat sitting or leaning. Today, today we eat leaning. No, because on all the nights of the year they ate leaning. Says the villain going, they used to ask a different question. They used to say, on all the other nights of the year we eat either cooked meat or roasted meat, but if it's not Pesach, we only eat roasted meat because they were eating the current Pesach. Gosh. My, uh, Microphone unhooked itself. I was sitting on the floor the whole time. It'll be interesting to hear how the video, how the how the audio comes out of this of this talk. I kept hearing what's on the floor moving around over there. Now I know. On all other nights of the year, we eat cooked food or roasted food. On this night of Pesach, we only eat roasted food because in the old days they used to be eating the carbon Pesach. The carbon Pesach, the Torah says, has to be eaten sliyeshu matzos marmal yochlu. You have to eat it roasted with matzah and marar. Now, of course, today it's the opposite. We don't eat roasted meat. We're not supposed to eat roasted meat on Pesach night. I don't know if you guys know this halacha, but we're not supposed to eat roasted meat on, carbon, on, on the, at the Pesach Seder. Lest someone think that you're trying to bring an offering, a Pesach, a Pesach offering, outside of the temple area. So today we're not supposed to eat. So says the Vilna In the olden times, they used to say, why do we eat roasted meat? But today we, we don't eat roasted meat, so now we ask, why do we Lean, because in the olden days, they used to lean all the time anyway. So the question's flipped. The question that used to be a good question is no longer relevant, i.e. why we eat roasted meat, is no longer relevant because we don't eat roasted meat. And the question of why we used to, why we, we um, lean while eating used to be an irre- irrelevant question because everyone did that. But now it's a relevant question because it's not common. Okay. Now. Mm. I've got such an amazing story, but it's a long one. And we are a little bit too close to the end of the day. So, I'm going to leave you with the knowledge that, God willing, next week we've got an amazing, amazing story coming up. A story that I heard firsthand. It's wild. It involves jungles, monkeys, robbery, gunpoint holdups. It involves all kinds of craziness, kidnappings, and, um, and we will, God willing, talk about it next week. Now my mother says, tell why we used to only eat roasted. Is that what you're saying? Why, why the carbon Pesach was eaten roasted? Is that because it's royal? Um, you, can, you can text it in. Okay. Um, alrighty. Anyway, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for being awesome. Have a wonderful, wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you next week. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.